0: Hi, I'm Marty EdChoice is Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis, and welcome to EdChoice Chats. On this episode, I'm joined by three very talented colleagues of mine, Jason Bedrick, Drew Kat, and Mike Shaw. Drew is our Director of State Research and Special Projects, Mike is our Research Analyst, and Jason is our Director of Policy. So Drew and Mike are two of the authors on EdChoice's newest report, the 2020 Schooling in America, K-12 Education, and School Choice Reforms. Jason does a lot of really good groundwork for us, and he's here to offer some of his perspectives, what the results in this report can mean for our listeners and partners of the states, and maybe talk about you know what's going on recently in legislatures. So gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Marty. Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: All right. Well,
0: let's take the plunge. Mike, why don't you take the leadoff spot? Can you tell our listeners about the Samuel polling project and how long it's been conducted?
1: Yeah, sure, Marty. So, longtime listeners to the podcast might have heard our other iterations of our 2020 Schooling in America polling survey project. As we said before, we kind of did things a little differently this year in splitting up the polling one into two different waves. So, tailing some results from our first wave, which was conducted in Late May and early June of this year, but also just in the way we report out the results, kind of segmented by topic area into what I think is pretty digestible slide decks and graphs, as well as discussions like we're having here today. We've already talked about some of our other takeaways from the first wave, those dealt with parents and students' reactions to the COVID-19 pandemic that upended schooling during the spring, as well as a broader view on homeschooling, which we've pulled about consistently in the past, but we really wanted to center in on this year with just so many people learning, at least virtually and from home. Homeschooling, though, has traditionally been one of our school choice focus areas, and we're broadly going to be talking about today K-12 education and educational choice programs for Americans' views of these programs, as well as parents' experiences with them. And to do so, we centered in on our survey of about 1,600 adults, parents of school-age children among them, and what's great about these results is not only do they offer a snapshot in time of Americans' views on school choice programs, but because we've been pulling about these programs for so long now, this is now the eighth year of our Schooling in America project, we can observe some really interesting trend lines about how Americans' views have changed year over year. And what we'll end up doing later on is seeing how Americans' views have changed from kind of the earlier days of the pandemic back in the spring and and early summer, into how those views might have changed over the fall and this kind of first full semester of what many have termed our new normal. So that's kind of the outlay. And Jared, I didn't know if if you wanted to add anything to that as far as like methods and and survey design with our choice related questions.
2: Yeah. And if you've really paid attention to our School in America surveys in the past, these are going to be the questions that really stick out. These are the ones that we're able to generate some trend lines going all the way back to 2013 for some of the questions. And I believe on school vouchers, we can even go back a little further. So the benefit of asking some of these questions year over year over year is we're able to generate the trends and see changes over time. And as Mike kind of alluded to, yeah, this year is we're doing it in two waves. So we're not only going to be able to compare results across years, but hopefully we'll be able to compare results within year With more School in America reports coming in Wave 2 results later this fall, early winter, within this calendar year. But yeah, I'll really jump into the results, kind of focusing on one of the ones that's kind of our bread and butter, which is the direction of K-12 education. This is one we've been asking since 2013, And uh, this year, more than half of Americans say that K-12 is on the wrong track, identical to last year. And about two out of five think that it's heading in the right direction, which is actually a 16-point increase since 2016. Which, getting into the weeds of methodology, we kind of switched up our modality. So we were doing phone only, and then we went to mixed mode starting in 2018. So there could be a little bump there, a little shift there since we're doing both online and phone now compared to just phone earlier. But but again, even if you just look at the trend lines, the results are fairly consistent with more than half saying wrong track every single year that we've asked the question. That's interesting.
0: I'd like to take a step back and just ask each of you what stuck out, if there's anything that particularly stuck out for you this time around.
1: You know, absent any individual data point, and this is kind of going back to the, the importance and insight of trend results. I was struck by this year, both the continued decline, as well as from year over year, the drop in satisfaction with homeschooling. You know, I, I think, and Jason might be able to add more to this working with all the parents he does, but I think you usually get like a certain type of parent who homeschools, who is maybe quite confident in him or herself and their ability to homeschool and that it just really fits their lifestyle. And it's still a very high satisfaction rate, 72% of parents who homeschooled this year said they were satisfied, but it's dropped by more than 10 percentage points within the past two years. And it's now kind of fallen from, in 2018, like the highest satisfied schooling sector between private, charter, public schools, and homeschooling of our main four schooling sectors. So now it's like just at the lowest by a tad, and so, you know, in, in some sense, it's it's maybe semantics because... Parents are so overwhelmingly satisfied with homeschooling, but it does make you wonder and give you pause about just with the different social work pressures brought about by the pandemic and maybe like the rush of more parents to homeschool, given the pandemic and other factors, if you're maybe seeing like a different or new population homeschooling than we have in years past. So that's kind of what struck me this year. That's
0: the thing that kind of struck me too, Mike. Jason, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, what do you think might be going on there?
3: I mean, certainly I think it's worth following up with a survey that can provide us a lot more context, but I I think that's right. I think you are, especially this year, seeing a new population that's homeschooling, a population that had previously chosen not to, but that is, you know, look, for a lot of families, homeschooling is an affirmative choice that this is the best case scenario. They are very enthusiastic. They want to do it. This year, you had a lot of families that were homeschooling as a least bad alternative. And as Mike pointed out, even for those homeschooling families that previously were excited to homeschool, changes with the pandemic, maybe there's another spouse who's now trying to work at home while you're homeschooling, that can be difficult. I know, for example, uh, having five kids at home and trying to record podcasts has been uh, a challenge for my family, trying to coordinate where everybody is physically in the house as we do this. So, I imagine that that is an issue. And plus, a lot of homeschooling families were used to going out and relying on museums and you know shared community spaces that just are not available right now. And so you think, well, oh yeah, those people at physical schools, public schools, private schools, charter, what have you, they're affected, but homeschoolers aren't. No, homeschoolers are really affected by this as well. But what makes it a little more interesting is that, as Mike pointed out, some of this decline started even before the pandemic. And so we can't say that this is all pandemic related. And that's why I think it is worth exploring further.
2: Yeah. And I, uh, as the former homeschooler myself for elementary school, I definitely remember the uh, homeschool days at the local theater for the Shakespeare play and the homeschool days of the museum. And yeah, those trips were definitely some of my favorites. And yeah, the experience just wouldn't be the same without those. So you're onto something there, Jason. And for those of you that are interested in kind of a deeper dive into those individuals who were homeschooling pre-pandemic and those who were not and their views of homeschooling, highly recommend checking out our previous Schooling in America podcast and the previous slide deck that does kind of dive deep into the homeschooling waters, if you will. But the thing, really, when we're comparing schooling satisfaction, I agree that um, the decline in homeschooling sticks out. It was also striking to me. That, in terms of most satisfied to least satisfied, in terms of the physical schooling sectors, it went private school, public charter school, and district school. So that's just of the current school parents that are providing those satisfaction rankings. And then, interestingly, when we asked all respondents, so this was kind of more respondents that gave any grade to a school in their area, the ranking is the same. The private schools received the highest grades, with about 70% receiving an a or B from all respondents and then 73 from just the parents, followed by the public charter schools being in the middle of the grades and public district schools receiving, I guess, the lowest grades. But again, overall, people highly rate the schools in their area. So even the lowest combination of DNF schools is 21% for the public district schools when looking at the entire sample of respondents. So so that is kind of striking that satisfaction levels kind of do I guess match up with i guess for lack of a better phrase perceived quality
0: that's really interesting and you know i think one of the slides that sticks out to some people is the one that compares school type preferences with actual enrollment and results from previous years tends to show this large disconnect can you talk a bit about that disconnect and if anything has changed
2: this year sure thanks for asking that question marty so we didn't do a trend line for this one this year, which we did last year. So if you're interested in the historical results, definitely recommend checking out the uh, 2019 School in an America report. But yet, yeah, they are fairly consistent over time. So when we asked the combination of questions of if given the option and it was your choice, where would you send your child to school? And it's almost evenly split between district school and private school for the top responses, with private school having a slight edge with about two out of five parents giving that preference. One out of 10 would prefer homeschooling, which is definitely higher than the national average of about 3%. But yeah, that 40% for private school is five times the national average, which is just striking. And nationally, we have about 83% of K-12 students enrolled in a public district school, but less than half of that percent would actually prefer to enroll their child in a public district school if it was their option. And We kind of did a split sample experiment with this, which is basically we asked half the population, one version of the question, and the other half a separate version. The difference being the insertion of the phrase and financial costs and transportation were of no concern. So we found that when we include that phrase, when asking folks if it were their decision and they could select any type of school, what they would select in order to obtain the best education for their child, there is a little shift. There is a 4% bump for... The homeschoolers, so 8% to 12%. Um, There's a very, very minor shift for public charter schools and private schools, but there's the same size bump that there is for homeschooling. There is a decrease for public district schools, which is really, really interesting to me. So I really wonder how much of that is the parents that would tentatively send their child to a public district school, but when they see that costs are not of a concern, they would rather homeschool.
1: Yeah, and the only other thing I'd add to this, to these results, is this was when we kind of split out by race and ethnicity. So, you know, interestingly, the three races we centered on, African-Americans, Hispanics, and white parents, they all had, kind of like all Americans, had diverse schooling preferences when you look at schooling sectors. You know, interestingly, the black and Hispanic parents slightly favored, actually more than slightly favored private schools when you compare composite results. With white parents, and this is truly slightly, 40 to 30 percent, slightly preferring public district schools. And so that might raise, and Jason, feel free to chime in on this, some thoughts about how we set up our public education system and and what kind of schools exist in certain areas and for certain communities. But what I found especially interesting when comparing these kind of preferences and kind of pluralism for schooling preferences is when you actually looked at people who have experienced different schooling sectors, each race had a different schooling sector they were most satisfied with. So it does kind of play out where even though you might have diverse preferences, experiences might play out differently.
3: Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. It also makes sense that families who have access to high quality public schools are going to be happier with the public schooling system than families who are more choice deprived those families who can't afford to live in an area with a high-quality public school and can't afford to pay private school tuition. So those families are going to be less satisfied with their local public school, they're going to be less supportive, and they're going to be more supportive of educational choice policies, which is exactly what we see among the African-American and Hispanic populations.
0: I think that's a nice segue into the, at least maybe for some of the readers of this report, the meat and potatoes the respondents' views about educational choice reforms. So let me ask Drew first, do you see any trends with respect to the support or opposition to the different types of reforms and how do you see it trending?
2: Yeah, thanks, Marty. So education savings accounts, which if you are unfamiliar with those and listening to this, highly recommend going to edchoice.org. And looking at our uh, either fast facts or what is school choice, just to learn more about what education savings accounts or ESAs are. So ESAs for four years running now are by far the most popular in terms of favorability. We hit the highest mark this year at 78% expressing support compared to opposition. We've also seen the trend of tax credit scholarships being the second most favorable. So it's a little more than two thirds of respondents favoring tax credit scholarships. And the interesting trend, I would say, over the last, actually, for the entirety that we've been asking these questions all the way back to 2013, is the interplay between vouchers and charter schools. So in 2013, they were kind of even at 60-60. Vouchers had the edge in 14-15. and 15. Charters had the edge in 16. Vouchers had the edge for another couple of years, and then it switched back to charter schools last year, and this year it switched back to vouchers again. Any given year, it's usually not more than a 2 to 3% gap with this year being 65% favoring vouchers and 64% favoring charter schools.
1: Yeah, and when I look at these results, because we also asked for, at least for a few of the programs, like reasons for supporting or disapproving of these types of school choice. And with ESAs in particular, I mean, as Drew mentioned, there's been a trend of increased support for ESAs and that may be somewhat intuitive because they are relatively new programs, certainly the newest types of school choice programs. And There's still a fair amount of Americans that don't know about them.
2: That's a great point that you bring up, Mike, because as our survey showed, like when we asked on our baseline question without a definition, we found that 35 percent of general population respondents had never heard of ESAs. And that's compared to 29 percent who had never heard of vouchers and 15 percent who had never heard of charter schools.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, and to clarify and, and further add to Drew's point, these approval ratings for choice programs are after we provide what we deem to be pretty complete and thorough definitions of the programs and, and how they actually work. You know, there are other point providers who just kind of give like a blanket term and, and you see support levels not as high because of that typically. But we think definitions with all polling and surveying is, is quite important, especially with some of these niche education policy areas that we focus on here at Ed choice. But regarding reasons for supporting ESAs, what I found interesting and maybe kind of contextualizing with the current state of affairs is three in 10 parents who favored ESAs stated more freedom and flexibility was the reason they favored them. And because ESAs are not in a tough states and they're, like I said are still relatively new, maybe that was kind of like a nebulous concept for the longest time. But I do wonder and, and Jason would love your thoughts on this, if that's becoming more actualized with parents maybe needing more education funding for home or, or service-based opportunities given the current state of affairs.
3: Yeah, I think that's a very plausible explanation. I mean, in, in years past, people thought of school choice. You know, In the movement, we've been trying to move away from school choice and toward educational choice, hence the name of our organization, EdChoice, recognizing that education is a lot broader than what takes place in a brick and mortar school, but I think you know the perception of the general public was that formal education takes place in a school building for the vast majority of children. And so when they're thinking about choice, they're thinking primarily, you know, in the paradigm of a choice among schools. And so a voucher is is a good fit for that. But the experience with COVID-19, being at home and trying to cobble something together, whether you're using online courses or tutoring or you know, homeschool materials. There's a lot of different types of expenses and different categories of expenses, and those are almost all covered by education savings accounts. So there you actually see that families have much more freedom and flexibility when it comes to customizing their child's education. And being thrown into this situation, I think a lot of other families that had never considered education outside of school as an option are now recognizing How much learning really can take place outside the classroom, and are more open to updating our education funding to account for that reality. And it's striking to me, given that context,
2: kind of the breakout of awareness of ESAs. So, this is another one that we kind of broke it out by race, ethnicity. And I would say the four of us talking on the podcast are statistical anomalies. That again, we are all extremely close to the issue. Because it's thirty-seven percent of white school parents, so actually it would just be me, uh, Marty, and Jason on that, since Mike, you don't have any kids that I'm aware of, uh, or that I think you're aware of either, or just in general, can confirm. <laughs> but so, so yeah, it's more than one out of three white school parents, thirty-seven percent, almost two out of five, that have no idea what an ESA is. They've never heard of it before. Compare that to the black school parents and the Hispanic school parents. It's 22% and 23%. So that means that at least three out of four have heard of them before. And the weird statistic that jumped out to me on this chart is that Hispanic school parents actually are more aware of ESAs than they are school vouchers. And that's maybe within the margin of error for the population. But yeah, still, even that they were kind of neck and neck is really, I think, good news in general for what has happened with ESAs and how they've been of growing in size and growing across the states
3: and i think this fits in with what we were discussing earlier that families that are satisfied with their assigned district school are going to be less likely to explore alternatives but families that are less satisfied with their assigned school they have a greater incentive to go and find out about education savings accounts and vouchers and, and other options so it makes perfect sense that lower income and minority families would be much more up to speed than better off whiter families when it comes to their educational options.
2: Yeah. And pulling this ESA thread just a little more. So we kind of like to ask two versions of the same question about ESAs, kind of getting at the universality aspect of it. For those of you who are avid listeners, I'm sure you've heard us talk about universal school choice once or twice. But yeah, here at EdChoice, we definitely believe that every child should be able to access every program. So some people believe that ESA should be available to all families, regardless of income and special needs. That's one of the ways that we asked the question. And then the other version, we limited it to families based on financial need. Uh, So the white school parents, it's about 80% agreeing with universal, 56% agreeing with needs-based. The black school parents, it was 83%, 58%. So a little two to three point increase on either. But the Hispanic school parents, 89% agreed with universal school choice compared to 70% agreeing that it should be based on financial
3: needs. So either way, those are huge, huge numbers. So yeah, Jason, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. And uh, you know, one thing that I, I actually emphasize to our friends who only support school choice if it's needs-based If you really want these programs to be politically sustainable, if you care most about low income families and the most disadvantaged families, which I do, it makes sense to have a universal program as opposed to a program that is only for those kids. And there's a few reasons for that. First of all, politically speaking, universal programs are much more politically sustainable. There's always higher support in the general population for a program that everybody can access as opposed to programs that only low-income families can access. And secondly, when you just have a low-income program, there's a small number of families that are able to participate. These programs tend to just fill empty seats in existing schools, but it's not enough to generate that education entrepreneurship that we need to fundamentally change the system. In the current system, advantaged families already have more access to a quality education than low-income families. The major concern is, well, if we have a universal program, it's gonna widen the gap. Well, the gap is already incredibly wide, and it is those who are the least advantaged and have least access to choice that have the most to gain from a system in which everybody has a choice. Instead of the system now, we basically, through our school district system, we've created a zero-sum game where it's essentially like the old-fashioned redlining. We're going to draw a line, and the well-off families are on one side of the line, and the less well-off families are on the other side of the line. And on one side, you've got high-quality schools, and on one side, you have low-quality schools. What we need to do is erase those lines, put everybody in the same boat. That's the way to improve the lot of the least among us.
0: So There's a lot of encouraging information, I think, in here. We have awareness that seems to be on the up and up. Support seems to be on the up and up. And speaking of program design, Jason, I'd like to ask, could you talk a little bit for our listeners about how things are playing out in states right now, especially given the current events uh, surrounding the COVID recession?
3: Well, as you might imagine, actually, there was not a lot of movement on educational choice this year. I mean, in a few states, there was, you know, there was a bill passed tweaking the ESA program in Arizona. There was a bill creating a new tax credit scholarship program in Utah. Also, the largest expansion of school choice in a single bill in Florida, and a few others very early in the year. But because of COVID-19, most state legislatures shut down fairly early in their legislative sessions. And there were a lot of school choice bills, or educational choice bills that were making their way through committees and didn't end up being acted upon because the legislatures closed down, and then when they reopened, many of them said, "We are only dealing with pandemic-related legislation right now, and we're just going to kick the can on everything else till next year, or you know, whenever the pandemic ends, which is perfectly reasonable. That said, because of the way that the pandemic has affected schools, there has been a renewed surge in interest in educational choice policies i mean there's there's a reason that the president and his administration have been emphasizing school choice so much we see that a lot of recent polls are showing upticks in support for school choice we see a lot of families that are upset about their schools remaining closed and so legislators are following so i do expect that in the coming year so long as the state legislatures uh, actually open back up in a timely manner, that we will see more school choice programs. And I should mention too that there have been several states where the governors have used gear funding. So these are uh, a part of the federal CARES Act. Gave governors these emergency education funds that they are able to. They had basically a wide discretion in how they could spend these funds, uh, and in. Uh, New Hampshire and North Carolina and Oklahoma, and we're hearing possibly soon in Texas, uh, the governors have either put some of those funds into existing school choice programs or have created new school choice programs or even uh, actually education savings accounts in the case of a couple of states that, for the most part, low-income families have access to. So just given that, I, I definitely think that in the coming year, we are going to see Many states considering expanding or adopting new educational choice policies.
0: Exciting times. Predictions, do you think next year will exceed 2011 as the year of school choice
3: or will be the year of educational choice, I should say? Well, I think 2015 was the big year, right? I think 2015 even surpassed 2011. I don't know that we're going to pass the high mark just given all the uncertainty, but. Let's say, I think it will be in the last decade, I think it'll be in one of the top three.
2: The double-edged sword of that, though, is more work for all of us, more numbers to remember, more programs to keep track of, more legislation to track, more participation data to request from states to put into our wonderful ABCs of school choice. But hey, I don't know any of us that shy away from hard work around here at EdChoice, so welcome to the challenge. Indeed, Drew. Agreed.
0: Is there anything else you guys want to add or say before we wrap things up? Is there anything you want to plug at all or something for our listeners to keep an eye out for?
1: Yeah, Marty, I would just reiterate for listeners to feel free to check out our slide deck on these school choice related results. And also stay tuned throughout the year for just our various polling projects at EdChoice. Paul DePerna heads up our really interesting monthly tracker poll where you can get state breakouts and kind of see more month-over-month month trend lines for various results of education reform and education-related topics. Like I said before, we're also going to be releasing the second wave of Schooling in America results, looking more at parents' and Americans' views of the state of affairs in the fall. And I would also just say, if any of this is not in-depth enough for you, and you know, we in many ways we've only scratched the surface. If you have particular questions about any of our pulling data, whether it be this year's school in America, our monthly tracker, or years past for any of your research or outreach projects or needs, feel free to reach out to us directly. The best way is probably our team's email address, research edchoice.org, and we'd be happy to try to facilitate any data requests or questions you may have.
2: Yeah, and I also highly recommend checking out edchoice.org engage. Mike has a great blog post, kind of tying together the findings and some context from everything that we've talked about on this podcast. And also, if you're interested in more demographic breakouts, I actually had a post that just went up earlier that did a deep dive not into race ethnicity because that was included in the COVID-19 and K-12 education slide deck, which was the first one released, but kind of with a dive into community-type breakouts, so urban, suburban, small-town, rural, income levels, and political affiliation. So, yeah, it's really interesting going through all those and seeing kind of who answers similarly to other demographic groups. Well, thanks.
0: Certainly a lot of good information and more to come, for sure. So stay tuned. Well, thanks to each of you for joining, guys. This has been fun. Well, that's another edition of EdChoice Chats in the Books. Thanks to our listeners for joining. Be sure to check out the description of this podcast for a link to the report discussed in this episode. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast whenever you listen to them so you never miss another episode. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you soon with more uh, Choice Chats.